This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And uh, we're back for another week of movie chats. Danielle, how's it going? Um, fine. Fine. <laughs> I mean, it's, such, it's so weird to answer that because I'm like, you know, we're a couple weeks into the Biden administration. So far, so good, I think. Yeah. We're recording this right after the um, inauguration. So hopefully by the time it posts, things haven't gone bonkers but other than that yeah just you know living in the epicenter of covid and and afraid to leave my house and my neighbor just went to brazil for two weeks and what yeah so this is where we are la i cannot even talk about what is happening here without getting so mad that i start screaming yeah i mean it's i had that moment too i think at some point where i was like it was truly like a you can't control what other people do and if you attempt to, you will die of a coronary event. Oh, yeah. People are trying it, trying it. And it just brings back all these feelings of like being the kid in school who always did the group project. Like I'm always wearing the mask. I'm always doing the stuff. And I look around me and I'm like, oh, you're just hopping on planes, going on vacation. OK, I guess this doesn't apply to you. Fine. Bye. Bye. Have fun. So wait, are they actually there are flights that are going to Brazil? Like it just seems mm-hmm. I thought international travel. Am I wrong? I, I maybe I just haven't thought about it in so long. I don't know. I think certain countries are closed down to us, but I don't know what's happening if you're like a citizen or not. And I think that maybe she's from there, has some family there or something. But I don't know what the protocols are because I'm not going to talk to her, obviously, for another four weeks. <laughs> she gets that. Test. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Two weeks gone. But yeah. How are you, though? Well, now I'm about to tell you that I actually went to another state (laughs) and now i feel your judgment cast upon me (laughs) you traitor millie (laughs) you know in my defense i went on a camping trip i drove myself there i stayed in my own hotel and my own tent because I actually got there the night before because we left early the next day and I met friends of mine who are a couple and they are also staying with their elderly parents. So I assessed the risk of everything and thought, okay, this is maybe okay to do. You play it safe, though. Yeah. And there, there's a difference to me with, between going camping in another state and getting on a plane to go to another country. Right. There's a difference. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to listen. Shame me if you must. OK, I'm I'm completely fine with it because at a certain point that is I did take a risk no matter how light that I think it was like I did take a risk by leaving 
my house. But yeah, I, it was to me the safest I could have possibly been. And the place that I went to was a national park. So they require yeah. people to wear masks and you had to wear masks on the ferry because basically I went to is an island that no one can just drive to. You basically have to take a ferry there and um, we get, just get kind of dropped off there by the ferry, which is interesting. I'm like, I'll have to talk about that to in walk. a second. <laughs> yeah. Like find your way. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and um, there's really kind of nothing there after a while. Like there's a campgrounds that they provide that has like, you know, real like an outdoorsy kind of shower, outdoorsy toilet. But for the most part, like you have to bring in all your food, all your water. There's nothing there on the island unless you go like to the north part of the island. And then you will find like multi-billionaire families that like own property, uh, which oh is very interesting. But it takes a while to get up there anyway. So who the fuck wants to go and like hang out with like weird rich people? But at the end of the day, it was super fun. I needed it in a way that I don't think I realized when I was planning it because uh, I was completely cut off. I didn't have I thought I was going to have phone and I actually didn't really have phone definitely yeah. no internet and it's wild there's so many wild animals around did you see any hell yeah okay what are the wild animals that you saw what okay. is because you're you're I mean, once you say i have had no phone i had no signal i had no internet and i'm seeing wild animals i gotta know what's happening and i will say too i this i drove three hours away from where i'm sitting right now right. so it wasn't like i went to I didn't need to go to Brazil. I just literally went three hours and saw wild animals, which I think is kind of weird. And I guess I forget that sometimes that I'm like, yeah, I live in a city, but also like the wilderness is not that far away. I saw the, the place that I went to is known for having wild horses, meaning that they're majestic and beautiful, but also scare the fuck out of me. Like, I mean, real wild horses are not like they're not cute in the way that you expect horses to be cute because they're not tamed at all. So you can't even just observe them safely because they will trample through your life. Right. From what I understand. Exactly. So first of all, wild horses don't look like the horses that you see at like the Kentucky Derby. They're like thin and you can see their ribs and they're matted. You know, they're not brushed <laughs> like they're fucking right. wild. And they kind of just s travel like in these little clusters and they're just eating stuff. And then you're told when you go there, don't touch or feed them because they will fucking kick you or trample you. Oh, and shit. I took that shit to heart. And let me just tell you why, because so we get off of the ferry and the the people that had camped from the previous night were were waiting for us to get off so we could get onto the ferry. There's a single woman who's waiting. She's got like her entire all of her gear. She looks fucking cool. She's like a middle aged woman. And of course, I'm like, I need to talk to her. And so I just kind of went up to her and said, Oh, so did you just camp on the island? And she was like, yeah, yeah, I've been coming here since like 1995. And it's like my safe place. I love it here. I camp by myself here. And I'm like, yeah, that's really impressive. I'm I'm camping for the first time here. I'm kind of nervous about it. But, you know, now you're inspiring me. If you could if you could be here by yourself, then I'm inspired to be here with two other people. Right. She said, yeah. You know, and I said, did you see any animals? And she said, yeah, actually, uh, yesterday I was on the beach 
And I was walking and I and ahead of me, I saw this figure that I thought was a person. And I get closer and I realize it's actually a horse. Wild horse on its hind legs. The horse was running towards her. She didn't even realize it was moving and she, she, until she got closer. And she was like, this horse is going to trample me. Except at the very last minute, apparently some park ranger drove up in a Jeep and drove the Jeep between her and the horse. And the horse like pivoted and went into another direction. <laughs> you turned and like, or like hopped over the Jeep and was like, fine, I'll go get the other person. <laughs> yes. And, she, and, and so I'm like looking at her with my mouth completely open and my eyes wide. And I'm like, so are you just telling me that? It was a great time. You were cool, except you might have died because you were going to get charged by a horse. And if it hadn't been for some random park ranger, you would be dead. And she's just like, yeah, but you know what? That's like never happened to me before. (laughs) So what? (laughs) Yeah. Death doesn't tend to happen until it does. That's how death works. Usually. (laughs) And then it was literally like she went, "Okay, well, have a good time. Bye. Got on the ferry. And I was like. We're getting trampled by fucking horse people. Like, I was like, holy shit, this just changed the game for me. So, yeah, we saw the wild horses and then I sat there in stone cold fear that they were going to come at us. Luckily, they didn't. And um, I even saw baby horse, which was so cute, like a little baby horse. But yeah, I saw fucking wild horses. I saw wild turkey. I've never seen a wild turkey before. Wild turkeys are scarier to me than wild horses. Because wild turkeys are just, they're loud and weird and they're faster than you think they're going to be. And they got the, that plume going. Listen, I love animals, but I'm also not a goddamn fool. Like I'm like, animals, they're getting their revenge on us all the time because we've destroyed the environment. We've destroyed their habitats. Uh, we've tried to domesticate them when a lot of times they just want to be fucking free in the world. You know, especially in Florida, people love to domesticate weird ass shit in Florida. I'll tell you that right now. And I'm just like, I don't want to approach them and be like, oh, let's have like a fucking like Winnie the Pooh moment. Hell, motherfucking no. no like way. you're instinctually going to kill me if you think that I'm threatening you. And that's the end of the story. I had a friend who got she, she got bitten by a dog who was tied up outside of a grocery store. Like a regular ass domesticated dog that she went to pet tied up outside of a grocery store and had to get a tetanus shot. Yeah. Stop thinking pets are safe. <laughs> like I've been bitten by two dogs in my life. One was at work, which is fucking crazy. And the other one was when I was a kid, like, you know, hanging out at the neighbor's house. So I've had this experience. I've had dogs yes. turn on me. It's not fun. In spite of it, I love animals, but I still know not to fuck with them. And so when I see a wild turkey uh, or a wild horse, I'm like, no, thank you. Lovely to see you, but I'm going away from you. Did they walk through the campsite at all? Or was it just like they kind of knew their part of the island was over here? And Well, I'm not going to lie. We had an overnight encounter on the last night. So my tent, okay, was fairly far off from my friends the campsites are really big definitely more than six feet maybe like 36 feet okay so it was really like it was really late like 2 a.m i started hearing human footsteps what i assumed was human footsteps Mm -mm. and i was thinking oh it's like somebody it's one of my friends who was like up in the middle of night or something looking for something no uh i shined my flashlight and it just kept 
moving around the tent and I'm like, uh, this is it. Like it's a wild horse. It's going to stomp us. You know, then I heard a big crash and I heard a lot of rustling and I was like, okay, I just need, somehow I'm going to try to sit here quietly and not get completely freaked out. It lasted for about an hour. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> this, what? This ruckus was an hour long and I'm like, Literally every muscle is so tense in my body. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> like what is outside this tent? You didn't peek your head in that tent once? No, because I don't want the situation where I've seen too many horror movies where somebody opens a door and then just gets slashed across <laughs> the face by like a bear paw or like, you know, something like that. Or like, you know, or worse, it's like a murderer. It's like a murderer. The machete, just the, the door opens and the machete slices my face in half so no i did not open the door i was like i'm gonna wait till no sound then i'll open the tent flap so you just listen to a horse on its hind legs because this is what i'm all i'm envisioning now is like a horse walking towards people on its hind legs charging just stomping around like it's on a runway just stomping around your campsite for an hour how do you eat did you even sleep no, that's why I'm fucking, look at this. Look at the bags <laughs> under my eyes. I'm pounding Diet Dr. Peppers. I'm like in a state because I literally didn't sleep for like three days while I was out there. So I waited an hour and then I finally like put my headlamp on and went out there. And I, it was like, <laughs> whoever showed up, I have, a, I have a feeling it's a raccoon because they're apparently they're not bears on the island. Thank fucking God. But it was the thing where it was like somebody partied at our campsite. Somebody took a cooler, an actual like igloo cooler, knocked it over. All the shit was popped out of it. Like my friend hung his backpack on the bear pole. You know, that they give you the pole or whatever. Yeah. Somebody had somebody quote unquote somebody <laughs> aka and a wild animal pulled the the backpack off of the pole opened it like a human being opened the clasp and pulled the thing out and like ate a peanut butter and jelly sandwich oh, some God. fucking cheese slices they stole like the uh beeswax wrapper from you know it was like the hippie beeswax wrappers oh. from the sandwich threw it across the fucking yard this could have been a murderer like it could have been a very savvy raccoon or an actual human murderer who was like i'm hungry no one's coming out of their tent i might as well eat i mean i can only imagine that it was like the part of uh 16 candles when jake ryan comes downstairs and like his entire fucking like living room is trash and there's like a pizza on the record player that's that's what this campsite looked like <laughs> yeah. and i was like and i just sat there and listened to the whole fucking thing happen so there's like a raccoon on a on an old school flip phone like Come party at the spot. <laughs> like just punch it in that like old school text playing snake. I'm glad you were safe. Did you have anything else to eat while you were there? Like, no. Was it all rifled through? That's the one thing that is great about going camping as an older person is that you have too much fucking food to eat. We had the stupidest. I mean, we brought capers. Who brings capers camping? <laughs> I had pesto, like glass jar of organic soup. pesto. Yes, we had soup, a charcuterie board. Like it was so <laughs> dumb. That's why these fucking raccoons showed up because they were like, okay, they went to Gelson's or something. Like they went to oh, the fancy grocery store. And now you are the Gelson's of the woods to them. <laughs> 
Like, we're like, boop, boop, beep, boop, boop. Come to the spot. They got a charcuterie board and capers. We haven't had capers in years. Beep, boop, beep, boop, boop. <laughs> These are no bologna sandwiches on Iron Kid's bread. This is fucking three meats. So stupid. But anyway. You have pesto. Thank you. National Park Service, thank you, wild animals, for not killing me. Beautiful. Okay, so let me ask you, though, because you had like an animal incident, too, like today, right? I was I, look- I was looking at your timeline going, uh-oh, some shit went down. What happened? <laughs> All is well. I have a cat. His name's Carrot. We have a, ver- we have a very respectful roommate relationship happening. <laughs> I love him very much. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like he kind of runs that shit a little bit. I had a box made for his litter box. Like he's getting custom made furniture. So he's definitely winning out in this relationship. One hundred percent. This guy out. has filtered. Like I walked in your kitchen when you were at the old place and I saw this yep. water fountain that was mm-hmm. continuously spraying filtered water in like a beautiful fat like a fountain that you would see at like in a new york city park and i'm like yeah like a sculpture park this cat is hooked up he has like a little ceramic bowl with a wooden stand for his food Cause he likes to kick when he eats. Like he's, he's always done this since, since we've, since we met each other. Like he, he, he likes to kick when he eats. And I think it's like, his, I call him a trash cat. I think it's like his old trash cat memory where he had to fight for food. Yes. And so when I use metal bowls, it sounded like somebody running a cup on the bars of a jail every morning. And I'm like, I can't wake up like this. I can't do it. So I got <laughs> this little ceramic stand, like a ceramic bowl with a wooden stand. He has a mid-century modern fucking shit box for his litter box. <laughs> It's like, you've seen it. It's a fucking handmade (laughs) mid-century modern shelf for his fucking litter box. This cat is solid. And then this week, I love him to bits. He's a male cat. He doesn't do a lot of dry food. It fucks with their urinary tract for some reason. Um, But I switched to a litter that kind of measures their urine. And so the the urinalysis based on the litter is that his alkaline was high. And that usually means that they have a urinary tract infection. So I called his vet, who's a home, his vet does home visits. Also, again, spoiled. You think my doctor's coming to my house? Hooked up. (laughs) I mean, if I need a mammogram, you think anyone's coming to squeeze my tits in my own house? No. No. So she's, she's really great. She comes over and like, you know, she took a bladder sample or a urine sample. um, And then she hooks this cat up. To an IV bag for fluids. Like, you know, those those ladies in Beverly Hills who were like, I would just like to get some vitamin B or like, I think it's it was like, Jack's or something. They got drunk and yes. they're like, I just need to do like an IV. That's my cat. It's like those episodes of Vanderpump Rules where they've been on like a nine day bender and they yeah. just need literally need fluids injected into their veins because they've like not they've only consumed alcohol. And then they have like those people show up in the episode to give them the IVs. Yes. It's, it's like a like a priv for cats. Like they, so she shows up and she's like, he's chilling on the couch. He's got the IV in. She's just pumping fluids just in case there are like crystals or whatever. And I'm looking at this scene and I'm like, 
I guess I'll go back to work now so my cat can keep getting IV fluid pushed through his body just because he's too lazy to drink out of the highfalutin water fountain I got for him. His home health nurse is giving him fluids based on the reading from a extremely fancy cat litter. I mean, listen. Listen, three things are true right now. One, (laughs) I make too much money. Two... Two carrot it makes too much money. <laughs> and three, somebody needs to get me the hell out of LA where the shit is normal and possible. I need to be in the middle of a country road scenario where I'm like, oh, you're feeling bad? You'll figure it out. You're a cat. Go talk to your horse friends or like have a fucking country vet come see you and tell you to just like get your shit together and not bring an IV. For you to like, and he was just chill. I could, you have never seen a cat more chill in your life. Just needle stick it like he does this every week. Just a needle full of fluids. Thankfully, he's fine. His labs came back. Everything's okay. Alkaline's a little high. So now I had to get him some cranberry chews, some like little highfalutin treats now. Uh-huh. I am that Dave Chappelle sketch come to life. They should have never given me money because... <laughs> I am spending it all on this cat, and it is an imbalanced situation. When I met him, he was in a cage in Union Square in the middle of New York, and now his life is somehow better than mine. Yeah, now he's at Nobu with Drake on the fucking regs. Like, Completely. But let me tell you, though, I will tell you this. I know people who are fucking dead-ass broke that still treat their cats like that like that are still like buying all of the bougie cat stuff it's truly because we love animals so much and he's all i have right now he's it so if anything happens to him my whole life is a failure right now also you you have been in the car with me when i have started going ham on those stores that are like just for dogs with like the fucking dog food in the fresh refrigerator like you're in Gelson's actually (laughs) and I'm like what there's like unhoused people lined up in front of the store where the dogs are getting fancy like that shit drives me crazy and now I have no argument because I looked at my life yesterday and I was like guess what bitch you're doing the same thing to your fucking cat (laughs) you think you're like better than the dog people with the fresh food in the refrigerator no look at this fucking cat He's got like, I'm surprised I haven't hired two people to carry him around in a sedan just because he's like tired from walking from the bedroom to the bathroom. Oh, my God. I can't complain anymore because like when I adopted this dude, that was the bargain is I will take care of you. And so that's what I'm doing. Do you ever think, what if I had had a kid instead of a cat? What would the kid be like? Would the kid get this attention? Would it get? Fuck no. And that, this is, I do think about this and I'm, everyone should be glad I have a cat because if I have a kid, I'd be like, uh, 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 you're going to wear those shoes until you can feel the concrete on your toenails. I am not buying you a Nintendo switch. You're going to read a book. You're going to get a library card. Like it would be Oliver Twist compared to what this cat gets. There's no comparison. And I don't know, like, I didn't have a pet growing up, but I did have a bad childhood. So I think that's where that distinction comes in. Sure. Because, like, I I guess, well, I had a pet, like, a little bit, but not, like, for most of my childhood. So it's like, no, kids, once you are, once you have a cognitive thought, you're one of us. Like, you don't get to just have shit. Plus, here's the thing. You can spoil a pet and still live in harmony. You cannot spoil a child and live in harmony. Like, even (laughs) in your own house. 
and you're unleashing that shit on the world. If Carrot starts acting out, it's just me and him boxing in here. Yeah, exactly. If you raise a kid to be like that, hell no. No. But yeah, he put me through it this week, but it's okay. It only happens every once in a while. Um, but it did make me think <laughs> because he's like, I think he did. There was definitely something going on because I can tell he feels a little bit better. And, you know, like there's always coyotes just screaming in my neighborhood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oof. So last night there were all these coyotes screaming and he went to the front door and he was sitting there looking out the like my whole front door is like glass. And so he's like looking at the front. And this has happened several times where there are feral cats and neighborhood cats that just hang out in our yard. And he goes berserk when he sees another cat. So you can tell because they'll start like pa- like pacing back and forth. And like, wah, wah, wah. like he looks he's like shouting as much as he can in human style that there's something else out there. So he was doing that at the front door. And I'm like, do not let me turn on this light and see that there's a coyote out there because I can't today. And this has happened before, where the last time he did this, I went out and I turned on the light. There was another orange cat that looked exactly like him outside. And I'm like, why am I in the movie Us all of a sudden? What is happening? I will post that picture. I will post (laughs) that picture because I looked at that and I'm like, someone's going to die tonight. And I think it's me. Oh, my God. (laughs) These two are scheming. So I went and I turned on the light and I looked at the bottom of the steps. <laughs> there was this like fluffy white cat who looked like she just like floated out of a little cartoon. Oh. And this bruiser looking like gray tabby just sitting at the bottom of the steps staring up like they were going to fuck some shit up. And I'm like, is this a gang? Are they your friends? Like, I could not tell what was going on, but he was so heated that they were even like in his view. And those cats were just like, what's up? So now I have like a cat gang war going on in my steps. And like, I don't know, he's he's feeling himself. He's feeling better. The cat gangs are back on. Occasionally we'll hear one like throw itself against the glass of the front door. Like they're trying to box. Because it knows that there's fucking good food and good water and a mid-century modern design within reach ass (laughs) shit box in there. So they're like, how can we propel ourselves into this house? I will literally walk (laughs) through a glass door to live with this woman who treats cats this nice. They're just throwing (laughs) themselves against the door. Karen's like scratching at the door and I'm like guys come on like let's let's bring it down a notch yeah they can't it's it's pretty hilarious but yeah he's all is well this is part of what comes with pet ownership where occasionally you just get really freaked out (laughs) but but he's back to being his little princely self oh well I'm glad he's okay I'm glad that no animals or humans died in the past week that's great I mean look it's not a horse on hind legs no matter how you slice it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a little raccoon beep boop beep boop boop i think they have salmon and locks and they have somehow have cream cheese and it's still fresh beep boop boop boop, boop. come hang out who are these <laughs> stupid people with these expensive things and how can we access them how do they think we weren't gonna show up and party like they basically <laughs> sent out a bat signal <laughs> in the shape of like the stone kitchen logo <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, the animals this week. Well, we have a um we have a good show and good movies and good themes, but this is also a special month for us. Yes. For me especially. <laughs> you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. A very special month, <laughs> trademark. It's Black History Month. 
It's February. You know what time it is. We celebrate diversity all day, every day on I Saw What You Did. But this month in particular is a real celebration of Black creativity and Black directors and, you know, some of the auteurs that we've brought up in other conversations, like when we had that conversation about Melvin Van Peebles. Um, And I'm excited for that. I think that, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like culturally there's been I wouldn't even call it a backlash, but I think that people are kind of reluctant in a way to celebrate Black History Month because they feel like it's reductive and it's the shortest month. You know, Black history, you know, should be celebrated every single day. And of course it should. But when you look at the world we're in now, I think any chance that you can celebrate something that is as meaningful to you as your culture or your race or where you're from, it's necessary to take the time to do that. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think it's it's a good time to sort of do a themed month. We've never done one before, and it's going to be able to give us the opportunity to kind of make a through line between all these different type of movies across the span of, what, four weeks? So the next four episodes will be about movies that feature Black directors, Black artists. It's going to be great. But yeah, I... To me, you know, that's obviously a question that's sort of like not for me to answer in a way. It's that do we take the moment to recognize the holiday, even though you're right, we should be processing these feelings like every single fucking day. Right. Especially with movies. I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's like a lot of Hollywood film history was not hospitable or even open to black people for a very long time. It's still that way. And this is like a subject that we can get into as this episode goes on, because we're actually going to talk about one person today who I think is, I personally think is a very neglected uh, black filmmaker and black artist. And again, like if you're, if you're a listener, you know that this is part of what we talk about anyway. This is not We're not singling something out as a way to say like, well, that's it. Never have to talk about that again. I think that this is just a heightening of what we already where we already come from when it comes to this show, the movies we watch, which is we're going to pick stuff we like. We're going to pick stuff that's cool. But we've never done a themed month before. So watch out Arbor Day. Watch out (laughs) (laughs) Sibling Month or whatever the fuck. We're going to start trying it, but we're going to start with Black History Month. And again, I think in this cultural moment, It's never far from my mind how little people know about Black creators and Black artists and Black directors and Black films and Black culture. It has been relegated to a part of our cultural understanding that doesn't get the accolades it deserves, I think, most of the time. So which definitely comes up with this week's theme. And it's also for me personally, like I... I don't even know how to say this. Like, this might be too heavy for this podcast. Um, But I feel like, so I grew up in a predominantly white town. And when I say predominantly, I mean, I could count the people of color in my town growing up on one and a half hands. And I was related to four of them. So I grew up in a household that insisted on my blackness in a town that wanted me to deny it. and. That was a really hard place to come from. And what I've discovered eventually is that I was out of touch with my own blackness for most of my life. And I felt like I didn't have a right to it because I didn't grow up in the monolithic way that most people tend to think of blackness in this country. And it took me 
longer than I'd like to admit, but also longer than it should have um, for me to feel comfortable being who I am and also claiming blackness, which isn't to say that I've ever denied it, but just to publicly claim blackness is an act in America that a lot of us have to do quite intentionally. And, you know, the, the history of light-skinned Blackness and passing, and, you know, I'm not someone who can pass, but I definitely understand the history of colorism and advocating for people with darker skin because people with lighter skin do get more of a pass sometimes. doesn't mean they're passing, but it means they get more of a cultural pass. You know, like we get opportunities sometimes or the way that we're perceived is as if we're different from people who have different shades of skin than us. So just making the effort to do that in my life and to be intentional about my Blackness is, it's something I'm still learning, I guess. And again, it's like almost embarrassing to admit that um, or to say that. But I think that's why this stuff matters to me so much. It's because I don't get very many chances to like explore what blackness means to me in art. I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like. And I just feel like I'm just glad that you've shared that with us because I feel like, I mean, it makes people understand the importance of why you're here right now. Ta being yeah. on this podcast talking about film and talking about your experiences i mean yeah and it was it's been important since we conceived of this show <laughs> you know like years I remember, like 500 years ago was it 430 years 605 ago? i think yes I 605 years ago when we decided <laughs> we decided <laughs> to do this show <laughs> um that was a big part of it is that you know we've both had conversations with each other about feeling as if you know, because of our racial background, we're kind of instantly held up to be the the speakers or, you know, the people who are like the cultural gatekeepers of things that are that we didn't grow up with, you know, in our white towns or whatever. And that we also have to learn about and had to learn about. Like, I remember being, you know, and I think a lot of a lot of black kids have had this experience where if you did grow up in a predominantly white town, you were the black history. So I think that it's yeah, like it's part of the reason why it's important to me that we are here and that I am constantly finding ways to have platforms to explore that voice because I did not have that for so long in my own life. The spectrum I think that we're going to show over the next four weeks is going to be really kind of interesting in terms of, you know, you're going to see people who have been commercially successful and have made a lot of money making movies and people who absolutely haven't and right. kind of sadly died in obscurity. It's going to be really interesting. And I'm just, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that we're doing this month. Me too. I hope that you guys have either seen these movies and maybe we'll like hear about them in a different way or haven't at all. And are curious because it's a win for us either way. So, yeah. I think also like what, what this month is really about is talking about value and how and why different artists are valued and how and why different types of art are valued and what are they valued at and who are they valued for? <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot of valuation that comes from the film world and who gets to have credence or not and who, who gets to have a legacy or not. So, Millie, you know, having all of this background information now, all this lead up, do you want to introduce our theme? Sure. 
you know, when we first were coming up with this schedule for the month and when we were talking about the movies that we wanted to talk about, we realized that there was like a person that's in common. And that person is a man by the name of Bill Gunn. Mm-hmm. And he, much like Melvin Van Peebles in the episode from last week, he was a true artist. He was a playwright. He was an author. He wrote books as well as plays. He was a director. He was an actor. He studied acting in New York City and was friends with all those people that you think about in the 50s. James Dean, Montgomery Clift, Eartha Kitt. He lived with Nina Simone's brother at one point in New York. So he was living that like artist lifestyle, you know, mm-hmm. like he was you can just see him sort of hang out in New York, being an artist, writing, acting, hanging out with other artists and really straddling that line between like, you know, the jazz age and um, like Bohemia, you know. Like he he very much came of age during those two times, I think. Totally. And he wrote a couple screenplays that were produced by Hollywood, uh, including this Hal Ashby movie called The Landlord. And then he made his own films at some point. And I will say this, the first movie that he made, which was for Warner Brothers in 1970, was never released. And... The rumor is that it had homoerotic undertones and that was something they didn't want to put out at the time, which is crazy. And then his film that he directed that Danielle is about to talk about was hard to find for a very long time, which is something we'll also talk about. But it's it's this idea that he was a true artist. He was working at the same time that the new Hollywood cinema was happening. So the Scorsese's, Mm -hmm. the Paul Schrader's, the Woody Allen's, all these people, all of the new blood that came into Hollywood um, sort of after the studio era, he was there for that. But for some reason, he was not a part of it. And you have to kind of ask yourself why that happened. Why not give him the opportunities that all these other white people had to make his quote unquote art. And We just figured that the two movies that we picked, he directs one and acts in one, and they kind of are a great showcase for somebody who doesn't know anything about him or wants to know a little bit more about him. But I I honestly think he's like quite an unsung person. And I feel like and he unfortunately died, I would say, pretty early in his 50s. And if he had lived longer than he lived, who knows what could have happened? I mean, he could have had so much output, even more than he already did. Completely. You know, I just think that this for this episode, we wanted to just kind of give him a spotlight and talk yeah. about him a little bit, you know, because he's the fucking best. <laughs> it's the best. And um, so interesting. I mean, a lot of I think he might have been gay, um, but also, you know, had relationships with women, you know, so he was kind of like a queer black artist working at this like really interesting time of which he was kind of shut out of. And that's really an interesting place to start. And really just he he was ahead of his time in so many ways, in so many ways. And one of the ways we're going to start talking about all of this, how all of this was encompassed in this one beautiful person. Uh, we're going to jump into our first film, which is Ganja and Hess, uh, released in 1973, written and directed 
by Bill Gunn. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. I was way too old when I saw this film. Like I was just telling Lauren that I feel like I should have seen this in high school, if for nothing else, than to see the beauty of Marlene Clark and all of her <laughs> attitude on screen and with wild abandon. Um, this is a great film. It's just to give you some backstory on it. Um, it screened at the 1973 Cannes Film Festival. It was remade in 2014 by Spike Lee. And he called it the sweet blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't seen it. Again, like Billy said, Bill Gunn hung out with, you know, James Dean, Arthur Kitt, Marlon Brando, Montgomery Clift, Sam Wayman, who's Nina Simone's brother, and who was also in this film as the Reverend. Yeah. But essentially, this movie is about an anthropologist, Dr. Hess Green, uh, who is stabbed by a stranger three times with an ancient diseased dagger. So now he can't die or be killed, but he's also addicted to blood. And as we start moving through the movie, uh, George Maida, who is played by Gunn, who is also his assistant, commits suicide. His wife ends up coming to look for him. They fall in love. All hell breaks loose. I think I usually end up every synopsis by saying, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> because it <laughs> like, does, usually. Like, I, don't to, I don't want to give away the movie, but like all hell breaks loose. Um, so what's cool about this film and what's, what's fascinating is Millie was, was talking about and hinting towards, it was almost lost. It was panned by critics. It opened and closed in one theater and the production company took it out of distribution um, after it did poorly at the box office. It was resold and recut and Gunn hated every ver- the version of it that he saw. But thankfully, an original cut was donated to the Museum of Modern Art. And without that, we probably would not have this film in its original intended <laughs> form. Um, so that is, again, film preservation, still important. Still very important. Um, <laughs> what I also like about this movie is that it's basically it's a Dracula story without European origins. Right. But that is intentional. And I've gotten some of these facts from like Wikipedia, which as a former college professor, I am ashamed of myself. But here we are. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to all my students who I said, don't use Wikipedia as a source. Here we are. Um But basically, I wanted to look up what, you know, to see if I could figure out what he had said about that. And he did say that from the outset, he wanted to use the story of vampirism as a metaphor for addiction, which, again, ahead of his time, uh, from the beginning, he's talking about Dr. Green as someone who's an addict and not a criminal, but a victim. So it very closely mirrors this like modern narrative we have about drug addiction and drug culture. And he was just so far ahead of his time in that way. And to turn that kind of sympathetic eye towards a black man who was using drugs or was addicted to this drug of blood (laughs) was to me, like just from the outset, I was blown away. And I just, I love that he had a way to translate those kind of intense metaphors into like very visually stylistic stories. And it's a very stylistic film, much like, you know, Melvin Van Peebles and some other folks that we'll talk about this month and forever. (laughs) (laughs) He kind of like he has this way of intellectualizing 
his characters that I really, really appreciate. And again, part of the reason why I wish I saw this when I was much younger than I was when I first saw it uh, in my late 30s um, is because I really wish that I could have seen just black men sitting around intellectualizing about like desire <laughs> and, you know, hunger and really feeding into these philosophical notions that are generally reserved for um, moneyed white people. <laughs> so on film, I should say, not in real life. But it was just all these very important representations and wide spanning representations. There's no such thing as monolithic blackness in a Bill Gunn story. And again, fascinating and just blew me away. I really love this story. I think that it's funny. <laughs> it's as funny as it is serious. Um, he really messes around with all these cool notions of religion and soul. Uh, what's her name? Mabel King, who plays the mom in What's Happening, plays the queen of Mercia in this. Like, she's another one. I feel like we have to have a whole month just for mabel king yeah because she was wasn't she in <laughs> she was in scrooge um, yes this is the second mention <laughs> she keeps popping up we need to dedicate some time to mabel king but yeah so it's really it's it's this you know again released in 1973 so it's got that 1973 haze and coloring and style but you really have i mean like look fake blood has come a long way since 1973 it looks like straight up ketchup in this movie, but it's still fun. It plays. <laughs> um, but this story about these two people and the way that Dr. Green's secret is discovered is just as comical as it is shocking. And then what happens next is just incredible. It's incredible. And just again, we're, we're, we're flirting. I don't want to give away the movie too much, but really walking that line between consent and, and uh, desire and when do your desires start to outweigh someone else's needs and it's it's just a good movie it's a really fucking good movie <laughs> so that's that's the way into this film but Millie when did you first see it and what was your first thought about it and like how do you feel about it now well, it's funny because I actually did program this for TCM Underground like many years ago, like when it first sort of cropped back up in the restoration world, because as we will probably we'll talk about this a little bit more, I think, with my movie, but maybe some of the other movies that we're going to talk about this month. Distribution is really hard for people of color. I mean, it's like they make movies and they fucking fall off the map and no one knows what happened to them. It wasn't until somebody dropped off a print at the Museum of Modern Art, right? I mean, it's that thing. From what I understand, when Bill Gunn first made the film, you know, he made it through a company. They basically said, here's like a bunch of money. Make us like another Blackula. Make us like a black vampire movie that's in the black exploitation style. And Bill Gunn was like, fuck that shit. I'm bringing you Ganjin Hess. And they were kind of like, oh, OK, so <laughs> we're going to have to cut all this out, all this ah. jibber jabber. Let's just get rid of all this shit. And they recut it. And it was like 90 minutes long or like not even 90 minutes long or something. And they named it like Blood Couple, I want to say. Yeah. Is that right? Blood Couple. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's some sl <laughs> schlocky B-movie shit. They always do that. And it ignores so much of the what's actually happening. It's Yeah, blood yeah. couple. What are they doing? It's a couple and they got blood. Let's just call a blood couple. Put it in the drive-in. Let's, let's make some money back or whatever. I had not seen it. I had only heard about it 
when I programmed it. So I kind of programmed it just because I knew what it was, but hadn't actually seen it. And at the time I had just, it's, this is so complicated. I don't even know if I want to talk about it. Um, just because <laughs> no, it, it involves it. me meeting up with this old professor that I had from undergrad. And, and I took a class that he taught about vampires. So I, at the time, the vampire film, the, 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 the genre, if you will, was kind of fresh in my mind. And so at the time I was thinking about it, I'm like, man, this is a vampire movie. First of all, they never mention the word vampire. They never exactly. say, hey, we're vampires. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. They're a, they're a blood <laughs> couple, but no one's saying they're <laughs> vampires. You know, oh, no. which is, which I think is interesting. And the funny thing is, is that over the course of the class, I mean, there's a lot of like um, generic conventions of a vampire movie, right? It's sort of like right. they sustain themselves by drinking blood. They are killed by crosses. They are sexual, highly sexualized. They, in order to get blood from other people, they must seduce them. So there's all these like conventions to the genre but the funny thing is, is that I think that Ganjin Hess kind of dips in what it wants to dip in. And subverts the rest. Totally. Um, because you're right in the sense that, you know, it doesn't come from like, I mean, this is not the fucking Bella Lugosi, Christopher Lee vampire shit. This is something else. It has more to do with African identity and African culture than it does with like Transylvania, right? Yeah, there was a lot like now I'm looking at this film and going, oh, there's all the all these other vampire movies that came out after it that are taking a lot of like what's going on in this movie. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but even the part where there's a part where Marlene's character is seducing the young man that comes to the mm -hmm. house. And it's like a very, very emotional, emotional, and but very sexual and sexy, I would say, scene where they're kind of like having sex. And, you know, it's clear that she's about to make him a victim of her. And it's just black skin and there's like mm -hmm. glitter and like this. It, it seems like it's shining. Like, and I don't know if it was like, it seemed like it was actual glitter on there. I don't know if that was on yeah. purpose. But then that shit reminds me of like, isn't that something from Twilight now? Where yeah. like Twilight glitter has like vampire. <laughs> glitter skin. I'm just yes! like, okay, like, not sure if the people who made Twilight yes. were watching Ganshin Hess, if they were cool enough to watch Ganshin Hess, but I'm also sort of like, it feels like this movie is bucking a tradition, it's part of a bigger tradition, but also creating a tradition, which is fucking incredible. Like, what movie does all those things, you know what I mean? I mean, this movie has one of the most moving church scenes I think oh. I've seen and it's about a vampire. So again, like, let's subvert this. It's not that the crosses are, you know, deadly to them instantly. It's like, you know, he's going to church for a very specific reason at this point. And let's show that emotion coming through someone who is not thought to have a soul. Like, what do you, what do you, how do you, I mean, it's just, again, mind-blowingly good in the most subtle of ways how Gunn is like subverting all of these, these tropes. Yeah. And I got to tell you. That church scene, I mean, we haven't even mentioned who, I mean, I don't even think I can even talk about this a lot because it might put me in a state, but Dwayne Jones. I know. So 
Dwayne Jones is an actor. Everyone pretty much knows him from Night of the Living Dead. And he is like a cultural icon because of that film. I mean, that was the first time I ever saw him on screen. That movie fucks me up. <laughs> like, say what you will about it being like a zombie movie. But like the ending of Night of the Living Dead fucks me up. And yeah. it's political and it's sad and it's true ass shit. It's like incredible. And he is what makes that movie so incredible, right? Yeah. So he's in this film and he wasn't even actually in a lot of films. And first of all, he's tall. He's so gorgeous. <laughs> handsome. Debonair. He's completely like his vibe is so um he's just sort of like understated like he's not he's just so cool and so almost reserved and you just that's compelling like you're just always compelled by him um because he's such a presence you know there's this scene when ganja first shows up at, at his home and they've only spoken on the phone so she shows up and she's very bossy and like you know i know what i want i know who i am out of my way and she says to him, because he's just hanging out, looking cool. And she says, you can tell your boss I'm here. And he just lets her go for a minute and turns around. He's like, I am Dr. Green. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just the coolest, <laughs> smoothest motherfucker. Oh, my God. He's so, so cool and so handsome and just like. Just like very chiseled, but also that kind of chiseled, but lean, you know, like yeah. just very like I'm I'm very surprised because I think that his physicality lends itself to a kind of acting that I would have thought would have opened him up to a world of roles. Like, why wasn't Dwayne Jones in Star Wars or like, why wasn't he in? I mean, we know why, but know. like, why wasn't he? We I know would why. have. Listen, I would watch Star Wars if Dwayne Jones was in it. I'm just saying. Thank you. But that scene of the church was seriously just like, gives me goosebumps. Like just the whole Absolutely. the the singing and all all of that. Obviously, gospel singing to me is very emotional and I am very I feel emotional every time I hear it. But the scene went on for a very long time before Dwayne Jones even shows up in it. And when he shows up in it, it kind of, he kind of, the way that Bill Gunn shoots it is like kind of from the side almost. So it's almost like he just kind of walked in the room and maybe nobody knew that he was coming in. It feels like it's a documentary or something. It doesn't feel like a narrative film in that moment. And it is truly something to see a filmmaker make those decisions that instantly affect how you're seeing the film let alone how you're viewing the film. Like that change in perspective is something that is so gentle, but so powerful. And it takes a true, I think a real brave and thoughtful and analytical and pretty much genius mind to kind of make those shifts and not to do it in a way that's like, I'm intentionally going to blow people away, but just to kind of think this is how I can translate what's in my head out into this medium. This is, again, like it's it's a compliment, but it's also just like something that really I still think about. And I think of it every time I see this film, the way that he films sex scenes to seem sexy without appearing overtly pornographic, even though he's showing like entire bodies and to not be from the perspective of the male gaze is unbelievable to me. You're so right. When you saw ganja's nakedness it did not 
seem like it was coming from the male gaze. It was seriously like incredible how the, there was equity between the naked female bodies and the male naked bodies. And I mean, especially in horror and especially in vampire movies, like that's not usually the case. Like there's always sexy lesbian vampires like making always. out in every vampire movie. No, I'm kidding. But you know what I mean? I'm not kidding, but I'm kidding. Cause I think it does come back to what you said about he was a bohemian living in a very bohemian time and a very bohemian lifestyle and ran in those sort of artist circles. He made this, it's just almost like an experimental art film. It's completely psychedelic. Yeah. But it's also just sort of like thoughtful and thoughtfully made. It's not too weird in that way where it's just, it doesn't seem random. It seems very like intentional. It doesn't hold anyone at arm's length either. Like, you know, some, so this is the kind of movie where like some cool bartender might play it behind, like on the screen on silent while you're drinking in the nineties or something. (laughs) But like, (laughs) this is so much more than that. Like, it's just, you, the fact that it has a narrative is important because it didn't have to, he could have just been all visual or it could have been just, you know, all one way or the other, but it has a narrative um, that is fascinating. But again, like I, I really feel like, to have a movie that shows sex in that way that is not through the male gaze or the white gaze, it's revolutionary. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more by reading part of a letter to the editor that Bill Gunn wrote to the New York Times. So this is after the release of Ganja and Hess. He wrote a letter to the editor called To Be a Black Artist. It was published in the New York Times on May 13th of 1973. And this was because... Correct me if I'm wrong. The movie reviewer of the Times panned it. He panned it, but he'd only been there. Like, he didn't even see the whole film. Wow. Yeah. Essentially. So that's, yeah. So he panned it. And this was this was the response. So this is part of the response. But I encourage you to read the entire thing. Um, he starts out by saying, there are times when the white critic must sit down and listen. If he cannot listen and learn, then he must not concern himself with black creativity. So right out the gate, he's just like, here's what's up. If you don't have the wherewithal to withstand this, then don't come at me. (laughs) Like, I don't need to see you reviewing my shit in your paper if you don't have the patience or the desire or the curiosity to meet me at my level. Right off the bat. And here's that part that Millie was talking about earlier, where he says, if I were white... I would probably be called fresh and different. If I were European, Ganja and Hess might be, quote, that little film you must see, unquote, because I am black. I do not even deserve the pride that one American feels for another when he discovers that a fellow countryman's film has been selected as the only American film to be shown during Critics Week at the Cannes Film Festival in May of 1973. Not one white critic from any of the major newspapers even mentioned it. Again, Mm. (laughs) huge, huge. Name a single person who's shown at con now in the last five years, 10 years, who isn't currently directing blockbuster films or isn't currently making huge budget, high level art movies. It's a big deal. So he's noticing this disconnect for his own work and standing up for himself in that way. This is the part that really got me, though. 
Your newspapers and critics must realize that they are controlling Black theater and film creativity with white criticism. Maybe if the Black film craze continues, the white press might even find it necessary to employ Black criticism. But if you can stop the craze in its tracks, maybe that won't be necessary. Wow, man. So that's why we don't hear a lot about Bill Gunn. And he saw it coming and he called it out and he named it and no one did a goddamn thing about it. Somebody in 1973, 1974, you said that was written in 1973. That was 1973. Yeah. Okay. Was saying that. I mean, we can say that right now. You could say the same thing right now. It's crazy to me. True visionary. Yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, I'm so, so glad that you picked this movie. I think it's so fascinating. It's so awesome. I think that the best thing that could have happened is that they put together the film that he made, saved it from the hack job, you know, the blood couple hack job. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's out there. Completely. And to create in a way that, again, shows that I for queerness, the I for blackness, and to do it in a way that is just so evocative and transcendent ahead of its time. I hope he felt a little bit of that, at least in his life. My film for this episode, the episode in which we're celebrating the actor, director, playwright, Bill Gunn, is a movie from 1982. It's called Losing Ground, and it was directed by Kathleen Collins. He used to be an abstract painter, and now he only wants to paint people. I'm a genuine success! Your husband is a genuine black success. Losing Ground is considered the first feature-length dramatic film that was directed by a black woman. Really? Despite the fact that it actually did not receive a general theatrical release it was never released in theaters okay uh which is also why daughters of the dust by julie dash is always kind of thrown in the mix as one of these like landmark films that were made by black women because she actually did receive a theatrical release so losing ground was kathleen collins second film her first was this movie called the cruise brothers and mrs malloy i think it's on criterion channel as is Losing Ground. But it's about 40-something 40, 40 minutes long, roughly under an hour. So Kathleen Collins was essentially working in academia. Uh, she was working on her doctorate and teaching. And that's when she started learning how to edit movies. And then she eventually started making movies as a way to sort of give life to these short stories that she was writing while she was working at the city university of new york and exactly like everyone we've just been discussing melvin van peebles bill gunn who she was friends with which is why bill gunn is even in this movie she was an artist she was doing it all she was in the university environment she was writing plays short stories making films teaching. She was an activist during the civil rights movement. She's editing, creating, and she herself was also a bit of a bohemian. Like she kind of lived this very 
artistic bohemian lifestyle. Um, there's actually like this amazing piece that was written by her daughter that I think was in Vogue magazine. And she was basically kind of talking about her mother and having growing up with her and just kind of the way her mother was as she was you know, she believed in astrology as apparently Bill Gunn did too. And they were very much like hippies, you know, which I love. Losing Ground was apparently semi-autobiographical, which I also think is really interesting. So, Oh, and you could tell from some of those academic scenes. I, know. I was like, <laughs> homie, that is what it is like. I know. I was like, I'm triggered right now. All this grad school convo i'm like i can't take it uh it's bringing me back to that place that i dropped out of sadly but um uh, PTSD. I, I know so just as in terms of a synopsis the movie is about this very beautiful and bright woman named sarah who is played by Sarette scott and she's a philosophy professor living in new york city with her husband Victor, who is played by Bill Gunn, and he's a successful artist. He's a painter. Okay. After Victor sells one of his paintings to a big museum, he decides that he wants to go rent a summer house in upstate New York. You might know where it is. It feels like it's on the border of Canada. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know Although where I'm sure in. it looks like Poughkeepsie. Like it's like an hour away, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know we've talked about like the difference between what's upstate New York and what exactly. isn't. So it's like, don't get on my case, people. Okay. Yeah. For the purposes of this podcast, anything that's not in New York City is upstate <laughs> and it's fine. <laughs> All I know is that it looks <laughs> lovely and I'd love to go there. Um, so basically, he wants to rent the summer house upstate where he can work on his art and be creative. And Sarah is basically against this idea because she, she needs access to the city because she's a, a professor and she's, she's doing research for this important paper that she's writing, which is about ecstasy, which I think is, a, you know, it's very clever. Yes. It's, it, not, it, the, it, not the drug, not the drug, no, not the drug, <laughs> but the concept of ecstasy and how people experience ecstasy, you know, it's like, this is a very smart movie. I'll, t I'll talk more about that later, but, um, <laughs> Here's the thing. So so she doesn't want to go. But Victor is sort of guilt tripping her into this idea because, you know, he's an artist and going there would be so inspiring. It would help his painting. And he keeps talking about Puerto Rican women living in Victorian houses, which I was like, huh. It's such a specific reference that you've got to be instantly suspicious. <laughs> yeah, I was like, huh, put a pin in that. <laughs> maybe that maybe we'll pl that plays into this story at some point. But uh, I just think that's so strange. But um, and also, I, I don't know if that's a, is that a, is there a place in upstate New York that's only Puerto Rican women living in Victorian houses? Not currently. OK, I wasn't sure if this was <laughs> something that I missed out on. Like there's some kind of ethnic enclave of like in upstate New York. I don't know. I couldn't. I mean, maybe in 1982. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who and knows? There, there definitely was like, um, I know that there, my, my aunt Evelyn is Puerto Rican and it is like black aunt. We're not related by family. She's just like, I grew up with her. Yes. <laughs> I have many of those too. And she used to tell me stories about, um, growing up in New York and how like there's of course like certain parts of the Bronx certain parts of the city were very heavily Puerto Rican um but I think that what they might be referring to here and do not quote me on this it seems to be the, the time of life when 
there were a lot of people who had like nannies and home health care and, you know, all that kind of shit. So this could have been like, you know, this is the part of town where all these women live in order to take care of these rich families and like the Palisades or whatever. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. OK, well, Victor is about it. Let's just say that he <laughs> he's he's inspired by it. And um you know, he's basically like, I got to go. Uh, it's going to help my art. And you know what? If you want, you can just drive back to New York a couple times a week if you need to, to do research. And it's just that thing where you can sense as a viewer, you can sense that there's already some kind of feeling that's present. And that feeling is Victor is like the star of this relationship. Like he's an artist and he needs to be free and creative at all times. And that Sarah is basically like his rock. Right. Like she's the steady, boring one. She's a professor. She talks about like philosophy. Like she's she's the one that is going to be with him through all of his whims. Right. But the thing about it is that it's obvious that Sarah's inner turmoil is that idea that she is too boring and too in her own head and how the stuff that she does and thinks about and studies AKA academia is kind of this stuffy white pursuit. Unlike art, which is more instinctual and sensual and it's a little bit, you know, less frou-frou. Right. But of course she ultimately agrees to go with him because of course she does because she's the woman. Right. And, and this is what women have done for many many centuries millennia um, yeah millennia <laughs> perhaps um even though i have to say the house that they go to is awesome and it's it, fantastic it looks incredible right like she didn't lose out with the house at all she did not so so victor's walking around town sketching all of the puerto rican women who are living in this town and i just have to say bill gunn is clearly being a shit but also just like so cute I mean, so He's cute. Adorable. He's carrying around his little his little Jansport backpack and he's got his giant sketch pad with his shirt. It's like three buttons down, unbuttoned, and he's flirting with everybody and he's just smiley and charismatic. Like, I want to slap him in his artist ass face. But honestly, like, what a charmer. I just have to say. Exactly. <laughs> Eventually, he becomes fascinated with this woman named Celia. She's like one of the young Puerto Rican women that he meets. And he's calling to her from the street. He wants to sketch her. He wants to dance with her. You know, he's just fascinated by her. Right. And Sarah is like figuring it out that he is spending a lot of time with her. And, and perhaps this has happened before. And you can tell she's slowly becoming enraged by this. Right. So she goes back to New York, kind of in a huff, uh, and then she agrees to star in this movie that's being made by one of her students. And while she's filming this movie, she meets her co-star, Duke, who is played by Dwayne Jones from Ganja and Hess and Night of the Living Dead. So it's like, hello, same people uh, in both movies, which is great. And again, Dwayne Jones is hot as shit and is... Even in a cape. So, yeah, he shows up in a cape, which I was like, huh, that's funny. And, and, you know, he's suave and he's he's like her. He sits down and he's rattling off like all of the religion, all of the philosophy mm -hmm. that she's been talking about and thinking about. And, you know, she's like, uh, 
Aruga, who is this guy who's talking my and language. He makes her laugh, which is incredibly important. And it's like the first time you really see her give a full belly laugh, which is great. And let's also note that it's not like as this this character is has not been suffering from a lack of offers herself. Like her students are enamored of her. Men flock to her. Like she is definitely had chances. Yeah. And, and that's the thing too, right? Is that you can tell that she's kind of processing that in throughout the movie. So she's basically like, why am I with this guy who doesn't respect me, who thinks I'm just this drag, you know? And yet I have all these other people who are interested in what I have to offer. I mean, tale is all this time. Let's get serious, right? So the funny thing about this movie that it's so funny because I told you this movie is very smart. There's a movie that's being filmed in the movie. And essentially the movie that Sarah and Duke are in is, I mean, this is some, some weird fucking student film. It has something to do with like prohibition, but it's also apparently like, it kind of talks about the old murder ballad, Frank, the Frankie and Johnny murder ballad, which is essentially an old murder ballad about a woman who catches her man cheating on her and kills him. Right. So you're like, huh, isn't that funny that she's in this movie? And she's also in a situation very much like this. <laughs> Kathleen Collins was no dummy, I'll tell you. And that's what like this movie does is it really balances the artistic and the analytical, both in the characters and in the subject matter, which is just choice. Totally. So as you can imagine, after they meet, Sarah brings Duke to the summer house. And then this whole kind of situation plays out. It's very anniversary party from, from yes. 2001, <laughs> that movie with Alan Cumming, um, where basically like Victor's Celia is there. Sarah's Duke is there. And it's just this very uncomfortable scene where Victor is acting the fuck out and he's trying to turn on the heat with Celia. And it's just very uncomfortable. And Sarah's processing this whole thing. And basically she freaks out and is like, fuck this. I'm not going to sit here and watch you flirt with another woman. And, you know, she leaves to go back to the city and then finishes the movie. And the end of the movie is this very much like it. Like I said, it's based on the murder ballad where the wife kills the husband who's been cheating on her. So in the movie that she's in, she does that. And somehow Victor just rolls up as this is happening. And it's this kind of moment where you're like, huh? Like what's gonna happen what's gonna happen to th these two <laughs> and does he realize what might be about to happen <laughs> right like and i think he finally figures out oh fuck right so that's the synopsis in the film now needless to say this movie knocked me on my ass when i first saw it and it's not honestly just because sarah is just like a relatable character i mean who hasn't given up their dreams for a partner Right. Exactly. Oh, God, this life. We're like, come on, who hasn't watched? Like, please explain to me again why we are still horny for men. Like, what is going on? <laughs> Truer words have not been spoken ever. Do we know, like, how it was? So this wasn't released, but it did come back out? Yeah. So I'll, I was going to say, well, first of all, I'll say this. The, re the reason why I really, really love this movie, though, is that it falls into this category of movie that I am absolutely obsessed with, which is intellectual people going on vacation to small towns and having relationship issues. Okay. <laughs> this French director named Eric Romer, he was more or less known for making movies like this. Okay. For example, 
when that movie Call Me By Your Name came out a few years ago, a lot of people referenced Eric Romer because that movie was basically made in this style, which is smart, attractive people in 80s clothes contemplating life and love in some like amazing summer rental in Italy and and maybe somebody has an affair or like a, a flirtation, but it's mostly just people who are like reading books by the pool and talking about the nature of desire or whatever. Okay. So, right. But the reason why we say that Eric Romer is the guy that made these types of films is because he had the resources and received the distribution that sadly Kathleen Collins did not have, including this movie that is basically. Like, I love to imagine this world where Kathleen Collins got to make like 20 movies, okay? And she got to be the true auteur that she could have been. And people on Twitter would be posting movie stills from her movies and saying like lifestyle goals in all capital letters. Like she would have had the Eric Romer career. Yes. And a movie that values intellectualism in and blackness. Uh Uh-huh. And just, again, in this way that is very common if you are privy to this stuff, but revolutionary to see. And how many more films could we have had that valorized things that were important to a wider spectrum of people? You're absolutely right. And if anything, I feel like this movie sets the stage for like American independent filmmaking which comes a few years later of and it's this movie smaller character driven stories deeply personal and that's why it's it's like so fucking puzzling to me you know that with melvin van peebles bill gunn kathleen collins these are people that are making movies that are literally in line with any of the movies that we know and love from these eras because here's the thing like i never knew kathleen collins the entire time i was in film school like she never came up but i bet you heard about Whit stillman absolutely 100 percent. it's almost like black people and women we're shut out of something almost intentionally, but it is. It's true. And this is this is why I think it's important to revisit these films and to revisit these creators is that it's unfortunate. You don't just get to think about the work that they've made or who they were or are. You cannot help but think what they could have been. Yeah. Because that's the other sad footnote to the Kathleen Collins story is that she passed away from breast cancer. At 46. I mean, and like Bill Gunn, she died young. And I think that she would have done so much more, you know, and we didn't even know what she was actually capable of. And she has an entire archive of unpublished writing and, uh, and work that apparently like her daughter is now kind of championing and releasing. So it's kind of like you're lost unless you have somebody who has gone into your closet and pulled out all of your material and gives it life. You know, it's crazy. And also, like, knows how to advocate for you. Because right. I could go into someone's closet today and find a bunch of beautiful films and books and letters. I would have no idea where to begin to distribute that. We have to have enough presence of mind to even know what to do with something that's that important and personal to you now, especially, like, if your mom is gone and this is all you have left. Like, it is a true labor of love to make sure these things see the light of day and get the credit and the due that they are worth and that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just kind of to wrap it up, I mean, when it comes down to it, like people like Kathleen Collins, people like Bill Gunn, they have made such important films that I think 
have only really, really, truly gotten their due in the era of the internet because archiving is changing, because, you know, distribution is changing. And that is a good thing. But it's sad that they weren't around to get that validation that they deserved. So, I mean, I'm just I'm glad that we at least talked a little bit about them, about Bill Gunn. And um, these movies are so great. I love Losing Ground. It is such a good movie to me. I'm so glad you picked it because it's fantastic. It's also a there's such a case to be made. And this is the exact reason this conversation we've just had is the exact reason there is a case to be made for finding ways to kind of storm the castle when it comes to putting people of color, putting black people, putting people into roles that might seem insignificant to you, but are actually part of the gatekeeping process. There need to be black film archivists. There need to be black people who are not necessarily watching out for this, like they shouldn't be the only ones, but who are at least part of this process of discovery and part of this process of valuation. Like there needs to be more diversity and things that you wouldn't even consider to be important to the process. It's not just the director. It's not just the writer. It's not just the producer. It is the whole thing top to bottom. All right, Danielle. This was an amazing, fun time to be sitting here with you talking about these movies. But we have an episode coming next week. And I was wondering if maybe you'd want to share the films that people should watch. I absolutely do. How how did you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's because we do the same thing every week. Yeah. Um, our movies next week, and again, you are welcome to guess our theme. Our movies are To Sleep With Anger, released in 1990, and Penitentiary, released in 1979. Ooh, what's the theme? I mean, you know the general theme of the month, but... Yeah, you can't, you can't guess Black History Month as a theme. <laughs> <laughs> next week will be a theme that is like just like our other all our other themes <laughs> yeah so come come to our social media and show off your smarts our social media is great just saying i think we're really happy about the conversations that people are having on our instagram um especially what's the instagram and twitter again those handles are i saw pod and you can also email us too. Uh, I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And thank you to the person who emailed to let us know that our email address was incorrect on our Twitter. Hey. See how that works? Social media all around. I'm certain that was my fault because I basically created the handle. So sorry about that. Um, look, it's a lot of I saw and pod on every document we look at. So do not sweat it. Oh, Lord. Well, thank you for that. And thank you, Danielle. Thanks to everybody who are listening. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week, y'all. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hartstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at iSawPod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Listen.